Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. It changes with the seasons, and it, it really is so clearly like a fully functioning real wetland. And it will swell when there's a heavy rain at the Houston Zoo. It, it takes on about 60,000 gallons worth of water when there's a heavy rain and holds it and filters out pollutants before you know that water is, is discharged into the storm sewer system. Again, Houston is a, is a city that has some issues with flooding. So the more we can be good neighbors and not overburden that storm sewer system, you know, the better, better we're doing. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our opening was today's guest, Kali Hodges, Sustainability Manager at the Houston Zoo. Kali leads the sustainability program for one of the most visited zoos in the country and participates in the planning and design of the Houston Zoo's master plan projects. He has more than a decade of experience in architecture and sustainability, having directed the sustainability program for one of the largest design firms in Texas before joining the Houston Zoo. Kali has served on technical advisory groups for the USGBC and International Living Future Institute and received honors from both the business and design and construction communities. Over the course of his career, Kali has witnessed rapid evolution in the sustainability movement. It's important to understand the sustainability movement in architecture to me as a return to roots of just good design. I mean, in many ways, it's getting back in touch with principles of design that those who were building buildings before us, all the way back to the time that people were building buildings in you know, your region, you know, principles that they knew and that they followed, principles of vernacular architecture. So I think the sustainability movement has always been here and you've seen it 
you know, it, it was advanced by you know, some great architects in the 20th century and even mid-century, people like Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, we're kind of getting back in touch with those principles. But more recently, I think the story of LEED, you know, the LEED rating system is really a positive story. I'm sure your listeners know that LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And it came in as this kind of grassroots voluntary movement that became entrenched in the market and the standards that cities and school districts and federal governments point to as best practices for responsible building. And I think that's that's an amazing success story, right? That for of the environmentally conscious architects and builders just kind of putting together these standards and collections of best practices and then being adopted. But the last 10 years, I, mean, I think the biggest trend that I've seen is how the sustainability movement has become kind of more specialized and modular, or, or maybe even a better term is multi, multi-nodal maybe. Because shortly after I got plugged into the green building world, you saw the emergence of, of things like environmental product declarations and health product declarations and declare labels, uh, which if, if your audience doesn't know, you know these are, these are voluntary transparency initiatives that, that manufacturers in particular can participate in. They're designed to function kind of like nutrition labels for, for products and give you an idea of the environmental and health impacts. And it was around that same time that there kind of became an emerging interest in health and, and wellness in architecture. And you saw rating systems like the well building standard emerge shortly after that the sustainable sites initiative you know well focuses on occupant health and well building sites focuses on landscapes and outdoor spaces and the ecosystem services they provide so that's an example of how you know there kind of became this more specialization and kind of modularity to the sustainability movement then th- that same time too saw whole building life cycle assessments really become much more mainstream and the software to do them and that kind of democratizing of that software happened around then and that led to focus on carbon embodied carbon greenhouse gas emissions of materials throughout their life cycle and that was i think a big focus for a long time and, and it was it was well deserved because we've been focusing on operational carbon for a long time and that's you know that's the energy used to operate a building under normal conditions but operational carbon can decrease over time you know the grid gets cleaner you have equipment upgrades and, and efficiency energy efficiency upgrades but with embodied carbon you know you get you get that one shot related to the materials you're putting in a building so i think that was a, a great focus that is still there but that you know really emerged a few years ago with the sustainability movement and probably even more recently you know i, I think covid did cause a little bit of a resurgence in an emphasis on health and indoor air quality but the biggest trend lately has been the social side of sustainability it's been environmental justice, environmental equity, the awareness that certain vulnerable populations tend to bear the greatest burdens of things like climate change. And that's probably the latest evolution that I've seen. Kali uses his background in green building to help the Houston Zoo shrink the environmental footprint of its facilities and operations to fulfill the zoo's mission of saving animals in the wild. Last year, the Houston Zoo, we celebrated our 100-year anniversary. 100 years old, our zoo started in, in 1922 with a single animal, a bison named Earl. Everyone at the zoo knows about Earl, chuckles you know, every time Earl comes up. But it was our first animal in, in the middle of, of Herman Park. And you know, we slowly grew over the last century into the 55-acre zoo in the heart of Houston that we are now. And for, as a point of comparison, you know, we're the second most visited uh, zoo in the country. So being 100 years old, I mean, we have witnessed and participated in the way that zoos have changed over the years. And zoos were originally devised as places of recreation, and the animals were often treated as novelties. 
And you saw the built environment reflect this in zoos. And the architectures of zoos, honestly, just wasn't, wasn't always kind to the animals and wasn't really designed for their flourishing. And the visitor experience was very much that of an observer, separate from the animal. And you also saw things like taxonomical organization of exhibits and animals, meaning all the same species you know, displayed together. So all, of, all the reptiles here, all the monkeys here. And there are still artifacts of the way that of organizing exhibits like that, even in, in our zoo, in older zoos like ours. But the biggest thing is that the mission of zoos really changed. Modern zoos are conservation organizations. They are dedicated to saving wildlife. And the guest experience is designed to give you the chance to fall in love with animals and therefore protect them and save them in the wild. And by visiting the Houston Zoo, that's, the Houston Zoo, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saving animals in the wild when you buy a ticket. You know, your money is going towards the care of not just the animals on our site, but local species. And there's a number of species in our area that wouldn't be alive without the work of the Houston Zoo. But as an architect, I find it fascinating that as the mission shifts, the built environment changes. And around the 1980s is when you really saw the shift to immersive exhibits that are designed to recreate an ecosystem in which the animals that are displayed together would actually live together in the wild and the exhibit's designed for them to thrive and it's designed for an immersive viewer experience. And from what I understand, Jones & Jones, their design firm, they're, they're the ones who kind of really were associated with and led this shift. And they have you know interesting set of rules and kind of do's and don'ts for zoo design that still are really helpful guides. And they're fascinating to, to read. And I encourage your listeners to look them up. You can find them online. But they're things like giving animals choice. So having different sensory elements within an exhibit for an animal. So sun and shade, high and low, wet and dry. So the animal has the ability to make choice and to remove itself from stressful situations. And other rules, you know, are interesting too, like to not have human artifacts, you know, in exhibits or overly dramatic elements like giant waterfalls or rock work that distract from animals or you know, you don't want people that are kind of looking across exhibits at each other, you can see each other. So really interesting, interesting stuff. So as you see the mission change, you see the architecture change and, and our zoo is really no different. About three quarters of our zoo has been renovated or rebuilt in the last 20 years or so since we actually privatized. Um, we used to be run by the city of Houston and now we're run by a nonprofit with the support of the city. So that happened in the early 2000s and some of our most recent exhibits, including one you know, I think we're going to talk about a lot today, the Catherine G. McGovern Texas Wetlands. Those are great examples of that recreation of an ecosystem and that immersive style of exhibit design. And you know, there are other ways that what we're building on campus has changed to meet our mission of saving wildlife. The non-exhibit buildings on our campus you know, are also in play here. And they're helping us fulfill our mission. We're in the process of designing our first three lead buildings on our campus, you know, all currently tracking for lead gold. We're poised to have our first mass timber building on our campus, which I know that you know based on your, your previous guests, it has a structural system that typically has lower carbon emissions over its lifetime than other systems like uh, steel or concrete. So these non-exhibit spaces are also incorporating wildlife saving features like bird-friendly glass. So when we build more sustainably inside and outside of our exhibits, we are shrinking our environmental footprint as an organization and therefore saving animals in the wild. So that's why, that's why we've made it a priority and that's part of how our campus has transformed over this last century. The project we are going to discuss today is the Catherine G. McGovern Texas Wetlands and Cypress Circle Cafe. All projects are located on the Houston Zoo campus in Houston, Texas. 
The Catherine G. McGovern Texas Wetlands and Cypress Circle Cafe won top honors for excellence in exhibit design from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in 2021. A quick reminder, as you listen along, click the link in our show notes to see the project and additional details that we discuss in this episode, or visit www.rcat.com podcast. The new roughly 28,000 square foot exhibit features three previously threatened iconic species native to Texas, bald eagles, whooping cranes, and American alligators, all in the context of a self-sustaining constructed wetland habitat. For those who have never been to the Houston Zoo, the site that we're talking about is right in the heart of our 55-acre campus. And for decades before it became this award-winning exhibit, it was a muddy duck pond, basically, right next to a beautiful mid-century kind of swooping concrete canopy and a shade structure. And this shade structure, too, it wrapped around some bald cypress trees and it overlooked this, this duck lake. Now, you know, talking about an organization and, and whether the built environment reflects your mission, Duck Lake was really not consistent with our mission. Um, it pretty much had a constant flow of water in and out, so not the most water efficient exhibit, and it only supported about 12 species, and, and that includes flora and fauna. And again, I grew up in Houston. I remember visiting Duck Lake in the 1980s and 90s, and it was, you know, I've described to you as very much just like what you would see in maybe a typical park. It really didn't wear, you know, that wildlife saving, you know, message. And at that time, you know, underneath the 1950s canopy that I was describing, that that shade structure, there were three small kind of storefront food service pods, almost less, you know, impressive food service venues. So the vision that the team had was, and this is before I joined the zoo, so I'm relate as as best I understand it, was to create a functioning wetland that could tell the story of local species that had been brought back from the brink of extinction by the Endangered Species Act and local conservationists, Texas conservationists. And part of that same project would be reusing that 1950s shade structure and creating an attached restaurant that would become a revenue anchor for the zoo, of our primary food service venue. And, and that's how the Cypress Circle Cafe part of this uh, exhibit was, was born. Studio Hanson Roberts was the landscape architect and exhibit designers. Lake Flato was the architects. The stats are, you know, the, the whole exhibit is around 28,000 square feet and involves a, a boardwalk that weaves throughout the wetlands and leads you past the exhibits of these three local species that are focused, bald eagles, whooping cranes, and American alligators. And the interpretive signage and messaging, that kind of educational component really helps tell the story of how those species were, were saved. And then our Cypress Circle Cafe itself, that's around an 11,500 square foot building or so, about half of its public area, about half of its back of house, also associated with the exhibit and, and kind of the, the project uh, scope is a, a life safety support system and, and yard for water quality equipment that's adjacent to Cypress Circle Cafe. So it became an extremely successful exhibit, uh, won top honors from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in, in 2021 and was named a top, top exhibit in the country. So we're really proud of it. What were your biggest goals for this project? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned that the most important goal was, of course, celebrating those Texas conservationists and to allow people to get really up close to these wonderful local species. But it's really, I think, it's an amazing example of that immersive, full depiction of the ecosystem that I was describing earlier. And I think that was certainly one of the goals, too. Wetlands are 
one of these iconic ecosystems for Texas and the Gulf Coast that, you know, as hopefully you're aware, they're extremely complex. You know, they're habitat for astounding number of species. You know, they're rest stops during migration for species, and they provide a bunch of ecosystem services, that, including sequestering carbon, acting as filters. You know, it's, it's said that wetlands are like the kidneys, you know, of nature and the way that they, they filter and remove pollutants. So our, our team, especially I think our, our water quality team, which includes experts in, in aquatic ecosystems and microbiology, they had this vision of creating a living, thriving, self-supporting wetland and a diverse food web that was really going to replicate natural hydrodynamics as much as possible. So they designed for proper water movement within this closed loop exhibit. And just to describe one area, you know, one of the best areas to me is this kind of a spiral eddy where guests can get right up close to the water's edge. So picture almost like a, a circular pool and concrete wrapping around it to where you can walk without, you know, a guardrail, walk really like right up, you know, to the, to the wetlands. And we have school groups and, and, you know, kids in camps come be able to put their hand right in, you know, into the water, this functioning wetland. But in this pool, water trickles in from a couple of, of directions as it's pumped from our LSS yard. And those trickles have kind of caused the water to cut its own path through the vegetation in the circular pool. Uh, again, just like it would in nature. So mimicking those natural hydro hydrodynamics. And from, from there, the water flows into the larger wetland. And I, I know it took a long time for the aquatic plants to grow in and for that food web to be established. But today it is a self-sufficient wetland and it's amazing. It, it supports more than 200 species of flora and fauna. And most of those are volunteer species that are not featured in the exhibits. They're just come to call Texas wetlands their home. And we have a, you know, a bunch of whistling ducks that move through and have their babies. And you know they call wetlands home. There's toads, water snakes, you know, a plethora of of invertebrates and small fish, mid-level predators like turtles. And it's, it's become so successful, actually, that, that we have groups, outside groups come in who are involved with wetlands restoration, and they will come and take some of our plants uh, to go aid with their local wetland restoration efforts. And I should say on, on the water conservation side, you know, I mentioned the inefficiency of Duck Lake. Even though Texas wetlands is actually a larger body of water than Duck Lake was, it uses less water. Uh, at least 15% less water and saving literally millions of gallons of water per year. And some of that's due to the extremely efficient LSS system that uses drum filters instead of sand filters and you know much easier to clean out. And that stat that the exhibit physically has more water, but is so well maintained as this closed loop that it's using less water on an annual basis. That's a huge testament to, to the work of our water quality, our water quality team. And I mean, if I can add even like on the subject of water, Houston is a city that is shaped by water. And, and you'll see that when, when you come here, you know, we're called the Bayou City and we're in many ways a city that is still learning to live with water. As we've had growth into you know, the fourth largest city in, in the country, there are surrounding ecosystems, including wetlands that have become compromised. And that's led to things like increased you know, storm surges and flooding. And we're a zoo for all. And I think it's really valuable that Houstonians who might not have had the chance to see functioning wetlands to visit a wetland themselves can come to the center of Houston and see and be able to understand the importance of this, you know, amazing ecosystem. The wetland helps manage the campus stormwater through extensive aquatic and riparian plantings that provide natural filtration as it absorbs and slowly releases water to the nearby bayous during Houston's infamous heavy rains. 
Cypress Circle Cafe, the 11,500-square-foot restaurant that is integrated into the exhibit, is one of the only Green Restaurant Association certified restaurants in Houston, focusing on reduced environmental impacts from the building and its operations, including eliminating single-use plastics and providing locally sourced sustainable fare. I know from my conversations with the architects that one of the main goals there was to celebrate that mid-century modern architectural style that influenced Houston for a period of time and was represented by that circular shape structure that I've described. And I know they wanted to create that strong inside-out connection to the Wetlands exhibit and help build up the amount of air-conditioned dining capacity that we had at the zoo and much-needed back-of-house space and and, primary food service venue. But, you know, the zoo also, our our zoo does not really have a singular architectural style. So I think that was one of the goals too, was to kind of try to create an architectural vocabulary that could be carried on for future projects. And there were sustainability goals too, to kind of connect it to to my world, you know, on the sustainability and operations side. It was definitely a chance to reuse that existing structure and to lower the embodied carbon of the project as a whole through structural reuse. The structure of, of a building is its primary source of carbon. So if you can reuse a structure, you know, it really goes a long way. And there were other goals, you know, related to sustainability, maximize daylight, incorporate those wildlife saving features like bird friendly glass, which I mentioned, and even some energy efficiency strategies that are kind of outside the box, like uh, designing for an expanded thermal comfort range, which is really interesting. And and it also kind of leads to some of the challenges in in transitioning from from design to operations. But yeah, on the building side, that was also some of the some of the goals as, as I understand them. In addition to a low-carbon structure through the reuse of a 1950s structural canopy, the project incorporates energy efficiency measures such as design for an expanded thermal comfort range, carefully selected sustainable cladding materials, and a particularly important yet rarely discussed element, bird-friendly glass. It is a must-do for us because it's one of those things that has direct implications for wildlife. So right along with dark sky compliant site lighting that's going to minimize light trespass and up lighting. You know, it's one of those just kind of prerequisites for anything that we're building at the zoo. And yeah, bird-friendly glass or bird-safe glass basically designed, you know, for, for birds to be able to see it during flight and to avoid colliding with it. And there aren't exact stats on this, but there's a shocking number of birds that are lost each year due to collisions with, with windows. Uh, it's in the hundreds of millions. So enormous number. And admittedly, in my previous practice, this was not on my radar often. Of the 50 or so lead projects that I've managed, I think we only pursued the bird collision avoidance pilot credit like on two of them or something at at the request of the owner. That said, when we would visit projects as part of the post-occupancy evaluations that, that we would occasionally get to do, we would often hear from building owners and occupants about bird collisions especially if the building had a higher window to wall area ratio, you know, if there's more glass, or if it was located near a wooded area or a body of, of water or another you know, bird habitat. So I was glad to become educated in this when I joined the Houston Zoo, honestly. Again, along with, with dark sky compliant lighting, it's a prerequisite for us, everything we build. I have to give a shout out to a designer with Lake Flato, uh, Sonny Diaz, who has done a bunch of research on this and really helped me and others at the zoo understand what options are out there. and. I should say first, there, there are design approaches unrelated to the glass itself that can help avoid bird collisions. And some of them are intuitive and what you probably are, are thinking of. So stuff like, again, lowering your window to wall area ratio, having, having less glass 
and more opaque, you know, more opaque surfaces that birds can see. But other ones actually kind of aren't intuitive. For example, you know, in, in a residential context, you know, apparently placing bird feeders closer to windows is actually you know, more beneficial, placing them within three feet of a window because the birds are, are going to be taking off and landing you know, at, at lower speed. So it's actually safer. But related to the glass itself, the typical solutions you know, are less reflective glass or applied patterns or etching that make the glass visible to birds. And some manufacturers even have UV coatings that are, are almost invisible to humans, but that birds can pick up on. They're pretty subtle. They're kind of just a slight color change pattern, kind of like a, you know, almost like a polarization or something to, to the glass. You can barely, barely perceive, you know, Guardian's one of the, the manufacturers that has some of those. But what's most commonly used are applied patterns. And there are some best practices related to the spacing of the pattern, uh, depending on what it is you know, a max of two inches or something, if it's, you know, if it's lines or, or you know, a two by two you know, dot grid. And there's also information about which patterns really work best. And they tend to be the highest scored on, on the way that, uh, you know, bird-friendly glasses is scored. It kind of has its own sort of scoring system. And from what I understand, birds tend to see dot patterns more of as kind of like a fog. So dot patterns are, are really less effective than lines and horizontal lines are more effective than vertical lines. And again, the, the spacing matters. And that's what we have on Cypress Circle Cafe is uh, horizontal lines via a, a field applied film on the number one surface of the glass, which is the most exterior surface for you know, any listeners that aren't, aren't familiar with, with, with that terminology. Glass surfaces are identified by number, starting with the exterior surface, which is surface number one. Each pane of glass has two surfaces. The first being closest to the exterior, and the second surface is closest to the interior. So there are always an even number of glass surfaces in any glazing unit. For example, a dual pane window has four surfaces, and a triple pane window will have six. It's important to correctly identify the glass surface number because decorative or energy efficient coatings are applied accordingly. In addition, the coating can have a different appearance or may function better on certain surfaces. And I believe the manufacturer is, is a Solix, but that film can kind of peel over time, which is one of the advantages to actually having the film or etching on a more interior surface of the glass. But there are some challenges related to that. You know, you know in, our, in our climate, we have low E coatings that help with energy efficiency that are really you know, best on the number two surface in our climate, which is the inside face of the first pane, the most exterior pane of glass if it's a dual paned system. And that can change in other climates, but for us, that, that leads to us either really having to choose to place it on the number one surface with that exterior surface, which is best for birds. It's the one they're most likely to see, but more challenging for maintenance, or to move it all the way to the number three surface, which is like the outside facing face of the most interior glass of a dual pane system, which is less ideal because it's harder for birds to see, but it doesn't interfere with those low E coatings. So there's room for more research on this, you know, and, and it's, it, there's obviously trade-offs too related to the visible light transmittance of the glass and the amount of daylight that you get inside a space when you're applying these kind of patterns. But we've identified bird-friendly glass as just you know, an essential part of, of what we do because of the direct implications for wildlife. When considering design challenges on the project, Collie's role as sustainability manager provided unique insights, where operations was at the top of mind for him. 
thermal comfort, you know, whether you are comfortable in a space is highly subjective. And ASHRAE, who sort of sets the industry standards, you know, for thermal comfort design, basically says if four out of five people are happy, you know, that's a win. If four out of five people are comfortable, that's a win. So you're shooting for somewhere around that 80% satisfaction mark anyway. And there's a lot of factors that play into thermal comfort. There's air temperature. That's fairly intuitive. There's humidity. And boy, we definitely know down in Houston that, you know, you can have a, a lower temperature, but with higher humidity and, and be less comfortable. We have radiant temperature is another factor that's, that's in play. Airspeed, you know, that one's pretty intuitive. Everyone knows you can have higher temperatures and humidity, but if you have air movement, you can, you can end up being comfortable. And then some interesting ones like clow value, you know, the insulative value of your clothing, the insulative property of your clothing. Do, do you design for people wearing suits? Are you designed for people wearing shorts and flip-flops? And then finally, you know, the sixth one is metabolic rate. So how active are people in the space? What have they been doing right before they came in the space? What are they doing within that space? Obviously, the more active, the more likely they are to get warm and uncomfortable. So you have these six factors. And one of the ways that you can design for an expanded thermal comfort range and therefore actually benefit a project as far as energy efficiency is to design for conditions where people are likely to be dressed for the hot, humid Houston climate and where you can take advantage of the contrast that people feel when they enter a conditioned space. So, you know, you can have higher temperature set points basically and save energy. You may think that 72 or something might, might be that default kind of rule of thumb for interior temperature, but when it's 98 degrees outside with 90%, you know, relative humidity, 75 is going to feel like 72 when you walk in. So this is something that initially the project was designed for, and we were kind of hesitant to, to fully implement. And we're, we're honestly probably due to revisit it. But it's a good example of how operations tends to be, I think, inherently kind of more conservative than design. And you know, when when you really kind of when the rubber meets the road, there there's some hesitancy to, to pull the trigger on on some design related ideas. Another example, you know, across the whole zoo, we have a pretty robust waste diversion program. Last year, we diverted about three quarters of our waste from landfills through recycling and composting. And at the same time, you have to acknowledge that different parts of the country have different kind of cultures and, and realities when it comes to the habits around waste and recycling and composting. And behavior change is, is hard. So at Cypress Circle Cafe, you know, in some ways, we, we've maybe been victims of our own success. It is a very popular restaurant. People are trying to make quick split-second decisions with what they do with their waste when they're done dining and they want to get back into the zoo. So, you know, there's, there's always room for improvement in the ways that the built environment can make it easy for people to make the right choices with where they put what, with where they put their recycling versus their landfilled waste versus their compostable. And, and we've learned from that and, and really have kind of, I think, done a little better on, on future projects. That said, Cypress Circle has been a flagship for us related to eliminating single-use plastics, which has been an initiative that the zoo's really been paid a lot of attention to. The restaurant is single-use plastic-free. Plateware and silverware are compostable. Most beverage sales are in reusable containers. And it's with the success of, of Cypress Circle as a restaurant and with the help of our culinary and retail partners, SSA Group, who run the restaurant for us, as well as our, our gift shops, that we've been able to take major strides in eliminating single-use plastics in order to save wildlife. Because often, you know, uh, single-use plastics end up improperly disposed of in bodies of water and compromise ecosystems and, and save wildlife. So we had started years ago with phasing out plastic bags, moved on to bottles, straws and lids in our restaurants. And last year, we became the first zoo in the country to also eliminate single-use plastic packaging in all of our gift shops. 
So yeah, there's been some lessons on, on the waste diversion side, on some, some of the kind of features that, that were designed for energy efficiency, but they're all opportunities and we've tried to take those and learn from them and absorb them into the way we build in the future. Another challenge for sustainable projects is product specifications. For the Houston Zoo, Kali detailed key products that they used and shared some considerations for product selection. As the sustainability movement has evolved, there's a lot of, of really smart people that are working on making it as easy as possible to find the best products. And uh, for a long time, there was just no centralized database to find things like products with EPDs or, or HPDs. And luckily, that's really, that's really changed. There are kind of go-to reference points for, for a lot of these now to be able to find products that participate in the transparency initiatives where, where you kind of know what you're getting and you, you as either the owner or the designer just have a more informed you know, opinion. There's, again, there's software there that's making it easier and a lot of you know, investment in intellectual property from, from really big companies to help you make decisions on setting benchmarks for things like embodied carbon of materials. So, you know, the, the landscape has changed where it's, it's been made a lot easier. I think, I think there's a, a point too related to life cycle, you know, cost and the idea that the, the green, the greener product may be more expensive and first cost, but it, you know, when you're looking at the lifespan of it, it may be the cheaper option. And that particularly comes into play for an owner like us. Again, we're a hundred year old zoo. So the whole, the math, the calculus is kind of totally different for us than it is for maybe a developer of a spec office building you know, where, where the incentives are placed differently or you know another type of owner. We're going to hold on to these buildings for 50 plus years. So the, the math kind of becomes different. But you know related, related to products, I mean, there's two, I think, real good examples. One that's that I can name specific products, one that kind of conceptually, I think, shows how for us, material selection is really another way for us to live out our mission. And, and we're constantly kind of learning about what materials meet our needs for durability and longevity and performance, but that also are aligned with our wildlife saving mission. And we are a well-loved zoo. Our, our materials take a beating. Our buildings take a beating. Again, 2.2 million visitors-ish a year, the second most visited zoo in the country. So durability is a big, a big concern for us. And one of them is related to, to Texas wetlands. So the boardwalk that I described that kind of weaves throughout the exhibit. So that boardwalk uh, is made of Ipe, which is uh, South American hardwood, great for outdoor applications, uh, especially in our, our part of the country, super resilient, fungal resistant, pest resistant, you know, rot resistant, very tough for outdoor applications, including one where it's right above the wetlands itself in, in a high, high humidity application. And in this project, we had insisted on EPA being FSC certified EPA. So for your listeners, if you don't, they don't know, um, FSC stands for the Forest Stewardship Council. So it's kind of the go-to best practice when it comes to sustainable forestry. So we had gotten this FSC certified EPA. It's installed in the project, the boardwalk's made of it. And we kind of thought that that was sort of the end of the story, you know, that we had, we had done the right thing and, you know, found the sustainably harvested wood and, and used it on the project. And Paid probably a little bit of a premium to get there, but we have partnerships around the world and we have a number of partnerships with conservation groups in South America. And we were actually designing one of our next exhibits, our South American Pantanal exhibit. And we had some of our conservation partners from South America on campus and we were walking around 
and they saw the use of IPE on uh, uh, Texas wetlands and uh, elsewhere in the zoo. And they gave us a really important insight. They said that regardless of what certifications this has and, and kind of what, what, what you think the sourcing is, we're from the region and I guarantee you it's really difficult to get sustainably harvested IPE. That label probably doesn't mean as much as you think it, it means. So to us, we absorbed that, that feedback and subsequently we're, we haven't built anything out of IPE on, on our campus. We found equally resilient and, and appropriate alternative woods like thermary ash or black locust and future exhibits have been have involved those and buildings have, have been made out of those. So it's one example of you want your materials to meet your mission and the smallest material choice becomes really critical. And the moment that you find out something like that, you, you can't ignore it and you have to you have to act on it. And and that was that was an important lesson to learn related to particular material and a particular application for us. Yeah, and maybe and maybe what kind of research may need to be done in certain kinds of material. I'm listening to you talk about this wood and I'm like, well, how would you know if it's FSC certified? You're assuming that certification has, you know, checked that, but maybe not to the levels that you would like it checked. Yeah. And that, and I'm, I'm definitely don't intend to cast any aspersions on, on FSC. They are, again, still the gold star in sustainable forestry, but, you know, there is the potential for that label not meaning what, what you think it means and whether it's falsification or something else. And just the hearing that feedback and it planting a seed of, of kind of uncertainty to us was enough to have us do our own research, come up with a different sustainable wood purchasing policy that we've, we've implemented on future projects. Kali's experience since joining the zoo illuminated lessons that we've heard in previous conversations, but the wetlands component provides a unique spin. One challenge that, that I became aware of when I joined the zoo was uh, with the handoff of the project in particular was patience. So it took a long time for the aquatic plants in Texas wetlands really to kind of grow in and for that food web to be established. So, the, you know, the, the photos that were taken when the project first you know, opened in 2019, they look great, but, but it looks so different than the wetland does now. And it's much more lush, much more grown in. And it took a while because that it had to become, it had to grow into this fully functioning, self-sustaining ecosystem. So the patience to wait for that, again, amazing kind of efforts to maintain that and, and you know, with as light a hand as possible from our water quality team you know, was, was, I think, part of, of getting there. But yeah, there were probably other aspects of the project too that, that uh, we'd learn from. But that's, that's, a, that's one that I've heard a lot about was, was just the patience of letting, letting that ecosystem kind of grow into place. And now, now it's amazing. And now it, it changes with the seasons and it, it really is so clearly like a fully functioning real wetland. And there, it even does some amazing things I haven't talked about yet. Like it will swell when there's a heavy rain at the Houston Zoo. It, it takes on about 60,000 gallons worth of water when there's a heavy rain and holds it and filters out pollutants before you know that water is is discharged into the storm sewer system. And again, Houston is a is a city that has some issues with flooding. So the more we can be good neighbors and not overburden that storm sewer system, you know, the better better we're doing. So patience maybe. Patience might be one of those lessons. So based on this project and and all the different pieces and parts and the journey that you went through, what will you do differently next time? And it's not even maybe differently. Maybe you'll do it more efficiently because you walked through certain steps a certain way this time. 
what lessons did you take from this that will change the way you do the next one? Yeah. I mean, there, there's been some positive lessons, I guess, especially related to wood. I already mentioned the one related to the boardwalk, the UCV pay, the, the cladding of, of Cypress Circle and uh, some soffit conditions have Cypress, unfinished Cypress, which has performed great. So we've, we've learned kind of some cladding materials that work well in our hot, humid climate. And we've been able to, I think, to move forward with confidence about the uses of wood in certain conditions and keeping as minimal uh, treatment to it as possible. I think one, one big lesson learned, honestly, is Cypress Circle Cafe in Texas Wetlands should have been a lead project and probably would have made a great sites project. That would have been, you know, at that time, a first for the Houston Zoo. And there's still, I think, only one other zoo that has a sites project. And, you know, these third-party verifications of the work that you've done, they have value. They have marketing value. They have a value of you expressing kind of your environmental stewardship. And they're just great collections of best practices to follow. So Cypress Circle is a, a green restaurant certified project. I think it's, it's one of only nine green certified restaurants in Houston. So that's kind of like lead for restaurants, but it probably should have been a lead project. And I think everyone on the team kind of recognizes that that's a little bit of a, of a missed opportunity and something that, again, now we've remedied with, with our first three lead projects currently under design and construction. The Catherine G. McGovern Texas Wetlands and Cypress Circle Cafe are stellar examples of the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. Cypress Circle Cafe has become a revenue anchor for the zoo and an example of how the zoo meets its social mission of being a zoo for all, while minimizing environmental impacts. As we wrap up this episode, I want to share additional insights from our conversation with Kali where we discuss the industry at large particularly regarding what design firms could be doing to improve their sustainability efforts. One thing is just to remember that sustainable design is just good design. It's what we were taught to do in school. I mean, it's, it's resource efficient design that is uh, being responsible with your clients' money and resources and understanding the broader implications of your design. I think it's getting away from a mentality that sustainability is this separate thing and, and only for special projects. I think that's, that's important. I think making data-driven decisions about materials. Again, there's more resources than ever that capture the environmental and human health impacts of materials. So getting a basic literacy with those transparency initiatives, how to read an HPD, for example, how to read a declared label, how to read an EPD. This is the kind of thing that the average you know, even lower level, entry level designer should be familiar with. Those are important. I think participating in data driven industry wide initiatives like the 2030 challenge, which is, you know, our industry's organized effort to avoid catastrophic climate change and, you know, tracking your portfolio of buildings based on their predicted energy use intensity and lighting power density of interior projects. You know, this is something that, again, there's kind of very basic rules to follow, uh, rules of thumb, and the ability for everyone in a firm to understand what the baseline that they're compared against is in, according to 2030 challenge. And just understanding and even asking the question, ask your consultants the question about what is the PU, EUI you know, of the building? What, what is the LPD you know, of the lighting power density you know, of the space? So those are some of the some of the big things you know that that come to mind to me. I don't think 
we're doing a good enough job at looking at beyond the building design, life cycle costs, life cycle durability. And definitely there's varying degrees of this depending on the type of building and the type of client and what, you know, what's most important to that client. Those clients that are going to live in that building for the next 50 years are much more concerned about those things than say a developer who's building a building to sell it. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're looking at what's going to achieve this aesthetic goal, but not looking at the repercussions of that choice, both in maintenance or the materials or that make that, even if it's sustainably sourced, that doesn't mean it's sustainable over the course of the entire project life cycle. You're right. And, you know, in my previous firm, one of the most valuable things we ever did was to start doing post-occupancy evaluations. So returning to projects that we had designed and finding out how they're actually performing and bringing tools to, to measure performance and interviewing occupants and building operators to understand their experience. Those are really game changers. And, and we worked real hard to feed that back in to the design process. So I, I, think, you're, I think you're completely right. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Kali. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I mean, my mind goes to the personal side on this, so it may be an uninteresting answer, but, you know, being a good father, that's probably the most important, you know, lasting you know, imprint I want to have on the world. I have two daughters age nine and seven. And, you know, I, I kind of teased it earlier, but my background before I went back to school for architecture is, is literature. I have a dual degree in literature and creative writing. And my hero, or the, or the person I think is the greatest hero in the history of literature is uh, Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, and he, he does you know, great things in his professional life. He's fighting for justice. He's brave when he has to be, you know, but ultimately that book is about him as, as a father. So, you know, whatever mark I leave on the world when it comes to architecture, sustainability or conservation, you know, it's all really second to, to my family and just being a good dad. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.